All right. If you keep doing podcasts and you do them and you do them and you do them, chances are you might contradict yourself from time to time, right? Not intentionally, but just if you have a sincere opinion about something, then a few months go by and you're like, yeah, you know something? I might want to rethink that one. That's what happens. It's an in-the-moment flow. And I believe I recently said... People really can't change all that much. Like our identities are pretty much set. Maybe you could make some improvements. Maybe you could address some areas that need to be addressed. But for the most part, you are who you are. It's not cynical. It's just kind of realistic that at some point you look around and you go, this is who I am. It ain't changing. However, I do believe I've changed in the category of patience. I believe I'm naturally impatient. It's not a great quality, but couple of things have happened in my life in the last five, six years. I decided to become a teacher and a dad. So the only way to do those things is to develop some patience. Got to be a little more patient. And I've noticed I'm patient with my students. You have to be or else you're not a good teacher. If you're impatient with the pace that young people learn, you're probably not that great in the classroom. You got to slow your roll, adjust to their abilities. If I just stood up there and said, everybody learn when I need you to learn. This is the exact point you have to learn this right now. Here's your concrete deadline. Now you never know when they're going to have the realizations, the epiphanies, the enlightenments. You never know. It'll happen. For most of them, it'll happen. And you start to realize the paces that students learn at. And it's made me more patient. So thank you. I don't know who I'm thanking right now, but uh, you're welcome. Nor do I know why I'm saying you're welcome. But let me just tiptoe away from that. And then being a parent, of course you have to be patient. You know those moments? Those moments? Screaming, tears, diaper filled. Mess on the ground, mess above. There's a mess from side to side. An emotional mess, a physical mess. It's just messy. You can't melt down. At that point, you have to have some patience and say, okay, we'll get through this no matter what it is. But yeah, parenting is about developing patience as well. So, I've done it a little bit. Meaning, I've evolved a little bit. I've witnessed it. I'm giving myself credit right now. And it all comes down to this moment. At Banana Republic, this is not a joke. A couple of weeks ago, I get all the coupons. I'm a member of the club. I got the charge card. Which means I get about six coupons every hour. Hey, come in now. Denim is now 60% off. Ding, ding, ding. The clearance rack has erupted. Come on in. Green light, green light special. Right now, men's shorts, two bucks. Come on in. And I read all the emails and I go, yeah, maybe I got to go in. I don't need any more clothes. This is the power of advertising. So I go in, I forget what I buy. I think maybe a shirt that I don't need, but because it's marked down from $80 all the way down to 50, cut it in half. It's 25 and your coupon is going to put you in the car driving home with a $3 shirt. And it's just a good story. It's not a good shirt. It's a good story to tell everybody. It's a $3 shirt from Banana Republic, but I have all the coupons, coupons on top of coupons, things that come to me in the mail, the actual mailbox, hard copy coupons, coupons on my phone. So eventually I go up to the cash register and it's this frizzy haired girl. I don't know. She looks like she smokes a lot during her breaks. Not unfriendly at all, but certainly not friendly either. Just right in the middle. And as she's kind of ringing everything up, you could tell that she's stressed out. Because I'm waiting for the discounts to appear. 
and she's stressed out. She no longer knows what to tap and her head falls back. Oh, what the fuck does this guy want? And she can't say that, but I know she's thinking it. And I feel annoying, but still I know I got to play the coupon game and get the discount. And now she's flustered. So the manager comes over. The manager, the smarmy guy. I don't know why why I labeled him smarmy. He's probably an okay fella. Who knows? But he comes over with his gelled hair. And he starts helping her a little bit. Helping her in a condescending way. Not in a patient teacher to student way. He starts to help her a little bit. And he's showing her what to tap. Now press that. And now enter that. Okay, and just click that. Good. And, and now enter his code. And she's still not getting it. So now it's like 10 minutes at the cash register. A line is starting to form. You know that feeling when a line is starting to form behind you and it's your fault or maybe the cashier's fault, but you take the responsibility and you kind of give the polite look like, sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. I just brought a lot of coupons. I need a $3 shirt. So the manager keeps saying, you just click right there and then enter and then slide it through. Good. And nothing was happening. It's almost like steam was coming off the cash register. And now she's turning red. And she's sweating and I'm sweating. And the manager actually says out loud, I don't know why this is so difficult for you. Quote, unquote, I don't know why this is so difficult for you. Says it right there. Kind of shaming her in front of the customers. And in that moment, I was torn. I was so conflicted because clearly I was thinking it the whole time, the whole time. I'm thinking, why is this so hard for you? You work at Banana Republic. But then again, try to be compassionate. The new Josh is patient. I'm a teacher. I'm a father. I'm patient. So as he says that out loud, I thought, hmm, whose side am I on? I legitimately wondered, whose side am I on? The manager's side, who just called her out, or her side? And I realized, I'd be lying if I said I was on her side, but come on. I was tempted right there to go. And I realized I was on her side and now I'm a patient man. Thank you, everybody. Once again, I'm thanking you. Like this is an acceptance speech at the patient awards. Uh, There's just so many people to thank. No, I I walked to my car and I was like, I'm torn. I remain torn whose side I was on. Eventually the manager just stepped in, you know, kind of like Nick Burns, your company computer guy move. And he moved her out of the way and he just starts to punch it all in and i got my discount walked to my car and realized i didn't need to go in i didn't need to buy a shirt i didn't need to see that young girl verbally abused by her boss but because at least i was compassionate enough to notice what happened and i didn't just cheer for her being castigated publicly i said all right i'm developing patience i am it's happening i'm growing up i got the gray hair to prove it i'm growing up And I'm moving out, Billy Joel, one of his better songs, yeah? Speaking of being a teacher for a moment, this is now year five, or if I include student teaching, year five and a half to six. All right, so now it feels real. Like, okay, this is what I do for a living. This is my career. But no doubt is this one of those professions where you're a true imposter when you begin. And I recently read an article about imposter syndrome that afflicts many Americans. Many Americans actually feel like they're frauds in the workplace when they first start. And it's not just like a remedial job. It could be like a big time job. And even though you have the education, you have the preparation, you have the qualifications, the first year or two, it's safe to say a lot of people feel like they might not even belong. Like they're just waiting to be exposed. 
playing a role, like an actor or an actress. And I remember that. I remember that vividly because now I see new teachers and I go, I get it. I'm still empathetic. I get it. You're going to go into class tomorrow for the first time. You're going to have 30 teenagers, eyeballs on you, just staring at you and going, all right, teach. And you got to go, yeah, yeah, teach. This is what I do. But real quick, here's what imposter syndrome is. It's an actual psychological term referring to a pattern of behavior where people doubt their accomplishments. I wrote this down and have a persistent, often internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Clinical psychologists actually found that despite people having adequate external evidence of accomplishments, they will still experience imposter syndrome. I love how serious that sounds. Yeah, I have a syndrome as they remain convinced that they don't deserve the success they have and they will be revealed as frauds interesting i mean I, I don't know doctors too you go through med school you do a residency then you're on your own people calling you doctor do you feel like a fraud do you have imposter syndrome for a moment i don't know i wonder if when they find a comedian put them on saturday night live put it on saturday night live immediately millions of people are watching you and these skits on nbc do you really feel like a saturday night live cast member or do you just go oh my god i'm out of place anybody nba rookie pick any team the pistons the bucks the hawks the orlando magic I don't know who the Orlando Magic draft this year. Even though this kid's probably been playing basketball his whole life, the first time he puts on an Orlando Magic NBA uniform, comes into an arena for warm-ups, he looks around. I wonder, little imposter syndrome? I think it's kind of cool. I think it's kind of funny. We're fake it till you make it as an actual way to become something. If you just kick in the door and you immediately feel like, well, I studied for this and now this is me. You're in the minority. I mean, I respect your confidence, but I think most people, you name it, I think most people enter a profession for the first year or two just feeling like a total fake. I remember. I mean, how do you become a teacher, really? You go get a degree, which means you pay money to a university. You go through all the hoops. You write all the papers. You go to all the classes. Hopefully you enjoy it. You're passionate about it. That's part of it. Let's not forget that part. Then you get placed at a high school or any school to student teach. And then at some point, your mentor is going to say, all right, here's the keys to the car. And at that point, this is the moment I'll never forget. I think the scariest moment of them all is the first time you ever teach a class. And you're just staring at that clock. You motherfucker. That clock becomes your enemy. You just spill everything out and you only wasted 11 minutes of an hour-long class. You're like, oh, God. Uh, and then... Could you sharpen your pencils for another writing exercise? It just becomes terrifying. And then slowly, you know how to manage the clock a little bit. You know how to let an activity breathe. You know how to really reflect on an assignment, get everybody on the same page. Soon you do become pretty good at it. I don't just mean teaching. I mean, whatever you do, if you do it, Malcolm Gladwell, my guy, Malcolm talks about all the hours you need to become an expert. What did he say? 20,000, 10,000 hours. As you could tell, I haven't read that book, but there's a certain amount of hours. I think it's 10,000 or 20,000 hours. Maybe it's 30. That sounds like a lot. And that's the key to success. So once you log enough hours, you become an expert, a productive member of your field. It's probably, you know, very subjective. Sooner for some people, maybe never for others. Maybe never for others. It's also the best time. Isn't it? Even though you're insecure and you're probably terrified, it's also when you're the hungriest to learn about it, get better at it, excel, thrive, to ascend all the many great things when you're at the bottom of the totem pole trying to climb up in your profession. And then when you attain that success, 
I think it is a challenge not to become complacent. I think it is. It's a challenge for anybody. I've said it before. Think about the dreamiest of dream jobs. What do you want to be when you grow up? There's probably somebody who has that job and just feels like, ugh, the monotony. Day to day, I come in here. You think Pacino, Al Pacino, I know a lot of people think movie star is an ideal career. You think Pacino's job are just on a set going, this sucks. This sucks. I wonder if Al Pacino ever goes, I wish I was a high school teacher. Let me just act for a moment like that could happen. That Al Pacino on the set of any given Sunday looks around and goes, what the fuck are we doing? A fake football game, LL Cool J, Jamie Foxx. I didn't think that was a great movie, by the way. There's not a lot of great football movies. Think about that. There's really not a lot of great football movies. What's the best football movie ever? Don't say Remember the Titans. It was okay. The Program? Eh, it was okay. Go back and watch it. Go back and watch all these movies, these football movies you thought were so good. They're really not. What's a great football movie? Wildcats? Varsity Blues? Actually, Varsity Blues was good. Is that a football movie? I don't know. But what the hell was I talking about? Oh yeah, Al Pacino. Someone who has the dream job, I bet they become complacent. So that's the challenge. When you're at the bottom, you're hungry, then you reach the top and you're like, all right, kind of want a new challenge, but it's so comfortable. I'm so comfortable now. The paychecks are coming. I'm comfy. All right, I have to bring something up. And this is not negative. This is objective. I'm not trying to attack anybody right now, okay? So if you feel like you're on the defense listening to this, I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking in general. What are people doing when they address their spouse on Facebook or social media? What are they really doing? There's a big difference between stating on Facebook, celebrating our 10-year anniversary with a photo. Fine. That's a nice little announcement. Versus to my loving husband of the last 10 years. You've been my rock. You've been my support system. You've been my intimate lover between the sheets. You've given me everything I've wanted. Our two little kids, Hector and Delilah. You've put the world in a vase and the flowers keep blossoming. I love you so much. What? Just say it to him. Once again, I'm not being negative. I'm actually asking, what do these people need that are doing the direct note to somebody on Facebook? Or any social media. I'm not against people that post on social media. Do it. And I don't even think I'm really against people writing these sincere, intimate, direct messages publicly to their spouse or their boyfriend or their girlfriend. But I'm just wondering, what do they want? Like, of course they want it to be seen. I'm not being naive right now. But why? Like me personally. My wife is in the other room right now. If it's her birthday, our anniversary, any holiday, let's just say it's her birthday. And I go on Facebook and I write, happy birthday to my beautiful wife, Shani. You've provided me with so much joy and hot, beautiful love. And I wish you the finest days as we celebrate together and toast to our eternal love. Like, you know how these messages look. What do I want? Do I really just want my wife to read it? Do I really Do I really want a little notification to come up on her social media platform? No, if I really wanted to share a sincere message, guess what I would do? I'd walk to the room she's in, sit next to her, and say it into her fucking ear. You knew I would swear right there. And say it into her ear. I would say it, or I'd write it in a note. 
But when couples are doing the public communication, can you explain to me what is going on? Do they even question it? Is this normal? Are people going to propose this way? I mean, how deep and private are these conversations going to be? Are these declarations of love going to be? Of course, it sounds like I'm being negative about it, but I think it's time we just look at it before it just becomes normal. I mean, it already, I guess, is normal, but we're still on the precipice of looking at these things, the way people communicate online and going, all right, is that okay? Is that okay? A lot of it, I guess, is okay. I can't question all of it. But when you witness the transition of people who used to talk to one another, and now it's just through social media, the happy anniversary stuff, it's too much. It's too much because it's so mushy. So mushy. Go to the bedroom. Have a little of that pillow talk. Don't bring it to Facebook. Come on, keep it off. Shoo, come on, go on, get, get, get off. Get off. You know who needs to get off, I just realized? Me. I can't keep coming on this podcast, ripping how people post on their social media. What the hell does that say about me? The hater? The hater in the weeds? I know for a fact, some of you right now are like, thank you, thank you for saying it. And others are like, I will never. Listen to your podcast again. You have called me out for the last time. Dear Shani, happy Friday to my beautiful wife. Tonight, I say we celebrate our love. Shut the fuck up. No one needs to read it. Spouse communication on social media. Come on. Come on. Do you think I can? I'm just going to ask that out loud right now. Do you think I can just shut down all the accounts? Do you think so? I don't know. I really don't know. Could I just shut it all down? Would my life be fine? That I'm certain about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'd be fine. I honestly don't think I'd miss out on anything. I just had an epiphany. I just realized I wouldn't miss out on anything. I'm really good with texting my friends, calling my friends. I even know my friends' birthdays, and I like to celebrate them. I'm good with it. I mean, if there's someone I met 15 years ago and they have a baby and I don't click like, that's okay, right? That person doesn't need my like. You got to click like when somebody puts up, you know, seven pounds, four ounces. Can't wait to get this bundle of joy home and just snuggle, wuggle, 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 like. All right. All right. I did that actually, I think. Yeah, we did the old. I don't think we put the weight up, but yeah, we put the old leaving the hospital photo. Now we're parents. Bring on the likes. Do you guys know why my beagle is not bald? He's been shedding, like severely shedding for 13 years. If you pet my beagle and look at your hand, you can't see the skin on your palm. You only see the matted fur that is this disgusting hound. And I ask you, why is he not totally slick bald? It's been 13 years of leaving hair puddles all over my home. Don't Google follicles. Don't tell me that you understand how shedding works. If shedding was like, you know, a few times a year, we find some of his hair in the corner. Okay. Every single day, he sheds a black bear and he has a full coat of hair every day. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't even have anything smart to say about this. I'm just looking at my carpet right now. My carpet used to be white. It's just dog fur. And we have a Roomba. That was my Father's Day gift. Dear Shani, your gift to me on Father's Day meant the world. No, I could just say thanks. Thanks for the Roomba. We need it because we live in a lot of crumbs and dog hair. But yeah, 
We have to have a Roomba. I think it's a state rule now. If you own a Beagle, you have to have a Roomba, Roomba. But we don't have the name brand Roomba. Roomba's kind of like rollerblades, right? Eh? They're really inline skates, but you call them rollerblades. Actually, nobody's rollerblading anymore, so I'll just move on from that. All right, I have a question. Maybe this is more of a statement. I don't know. The Royal Gemstones. Anybody watching HBO? Of course you are. It's the greatest channel. Hard Knocks. I'm not even going to talk about that, but it's reason enough to subscribe to HBO. Hard Knocks. I said it. Better than anything. Is that right? Better than Game of Thrones? You're damn right. Better than The Sopranos? Uh Uh-huh. Training camp? NFL teams? Better than the actual games? Oh, yeah. But I'm talking about this new show. John Goodman. Adam Devine. But that's not my question. My question is Danny McBride. Do you know who this is? And, comma, Is he the biggest name in comedy right now? Who's the biggest name in comedy right now? Will Ferrell's kind of going downhill. You know that. Zach Galifianakis, he doesn't show up in all that much. Jack Black, goodbye. Anybody on Saturday Night Live? Not really. Kevin Hart, I guess he's big. But who's excited to go to Kevin Hart movies? I'm scanning the room. It's a big fat nobody. All right, so really, who's the biggest name in comedy? And I don't really think just movies, but if you think about what HBO has done, They've given Danny McBride, Eastbound and Down, Kenny Powers, very funny, very dark. Very funny, very dark. That's how you explain it. Vice Principals, or was it called Assistant Principals? You remember that show? Danny McBride, very dark. Very dark. A lot of blood. But this show, The Royal Gemstones, is so bloody. It's one of those shows that's so bloody and just weird and dark and heavy. Makes you uncomfortable. That it becomes comfortable just to see blood, guts, bad jokes, Tasteless jokes. And my style of comedy, you know, push the envelope as far as it'll go. But there's some jokes where I'm like, it's below the belt. It's about a family of very wealthy evangelical Christians, televangelists. I'm talking about very wealthy. Like they all live on a compound and everybody has a mansion. And the big dad is John Goodman, who's so good. John Goodman is always good. Go back to your earliest memories of watching Roseanne. Wasn't he great? Yeah, I'm talking about King Ralph. Yeah, I'm talking about the babe. Yeah, you remember him in The Big Lebowski. Yeah, John Goodman. And this is the perfect role for him. He's the father of this very wealthy religious family. And I don't even remember. Am I talking about Danny McBride right now or the idea behind the show? The idea behind the show, real quick, and I actually like religion. You know, a lot of our great stories, morals, ethics, good, keep you in line. I realize there have been a lot of deaths and wars because of religion. I get that. But, you know, it has its place. If you're a person of faith, power to you. Power to you. Gives people some comfort. Helps people avoid sinning. Don't you sin. Don't you dare. But this kind of shines a light on the ugly side of religion. The fact that some people are making a lot of money selling God. It's, It's a business. We all know that, right? And some people exploit the business, just like any business. And they build their big mega churches and they put all the little churches out of business. It's like the Walmart of churches show. Things I haven't really thought of because usually you think about Walmart and you think about, you know, commerce and shops and you can think about monopolies and economics, what Amazon online shopping has done. But when you think about it with religion, the big business behind religion, it becomes a little dirtier. You know, and you don't want to point the finger and go, see, look how ugly the dark underbelly is of this religion or that religion. And this one is about Jesus Christ, but any religion you could you could say is big business, even if that's not their intent. But this show is so ridiculous. I'll add the ridiculous. I don't want to just stop with ridic. 
And it's Danny McBride doing the same thing, speaking in the same voice, same exact jokes, same exact body movements. And I'm wondering, what do the ratings say? Like, what do the focus groups say that he's great? He's become such a success. He's so weird. And I think I like him. Every episode, though, of every show he's ever done, I want to turn off. Isn't that a weird feeling that I've seen everything he's ever done? Every movie. Probably the first time you saw him was Pineapple Express, which was not a bad movie. And most recently, I saw him in this movie called Arizona on HBO. Holy shit, it was dark. It's just Danny McBride being Danny McBride with a lot of bullets, a lot of fights, a lot of swear words. There's a lot of guns. There's a lot of fights. There's a lot of swear words. There's a lot of guns. It's the same thing, but it's not totally poorly written. He knows, I think there's a weird aspect to Danny McBride's writing that's genius because he pulls us in. He pulls us in. He knows we're going to hate him. He knows we're going to have some laughs. And then he knows to hit him with a little suspense at the end of every episode. So the Royal Gemstones, here's how I watch it. I go, all right, this one's going to be rough, terrible. I don't want to see this. I'm almost turning it off. I got to leave the room, take a lap, get outside, come back. I watch it and go, ooh, that was a good ending. That was a good ending. And then scenes from the next, you go, I'm hooked. I think he understands how to write a show. If you know the recipe for success, hey, we'll keep coming. The sheep will keep coming. If you don't even know who Danny McBride is, though, don't start now. It's like a drug. Don't start now. You don't want to start. All right, but something you do want to start, hey, that's a nice transition. Something you do want to start is the book Robin. Here's where I brag about how fast I read. You ready for this part of the podcast? This is where I brag. It's about 440 pages. Read it in one hour. Okay, that's a lie. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks. And it's the story of Robin Williams' life. And if you love Robin Williams, I wonder how you'll feel at the end. Because it's not promotional. It's about really who he was, what he dealt with towards the end. And I wonder if the people that really read this entire book, I just finished it. And I couldn't stop. It was one of those books. It's one of those books. It's a true page turner. The definition of a page turner. This guy, Dave Itzkoff, he probably interviewed 500 people. I mean, this is a thorough, thorough bio. From the early days in Michigan to the family moving out to Tiburon as Robin Williams went to Redwood High. Then attacked the San Francisco comedy scene when it was booming down to L.A. Yeah, I don't want to tell the whole story. You know about his movies. All the movies. Good morning. Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, Mrs. Doubtfire, Hook. Bicentennial Man, Night at the Museum, all the movies you remember. So the book thoroughly covers all the movies. You know, stories from the set. It's entertaining. If you're just a cinephile, does that mean you're into movies? Then you'll like this book. If you're a Robin Williams fan, you'll like this book. But there's a question you got to ask at the end. If you actually finish this book, ask yourself if you're still surprised that he killed himself. Because clearly we were all surprised when we heard that news. I remember seeing it on Twitter. Robin Williams found dead in his home and, you know, just your heart stops. It makes you sad. It makes you sick. He goes, this real, you know, it's, it's actually one of those moments where I'm going to remember like it was historic. That's how big Robin Williams was. But when you really read about his last two years, how he was losing weight, he felt like he was losing his humor. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's. He felt like he disappointed his children because of all the adultery, philandering, Looking back on some of the movies he made, just disappointed, humiliated, saying, these aren't funny. I'm just doing it for the paycheck. You know, paying two ex-wives a lot of alimony. He really needed the money towards the end. And the last thing was a CBS sitcom called The Crazy Ones, where it just wasn't him. They casted him because it was the name, but everything was empty. 
like even his eyes. If you watch any reruns of this, that's what they focus on. Like the co-workers or his fellow actors on the set, they were like, that was not Robin Williams. It was a shell of himself. And then they describe the last days and the last moments in this book. And you just go, yeah, I get it. I get that this guy had nothing left. He didn't. And plus alcoholism and drug abuse was already in his nature. It was the perfect storm. I don't know how else to explain it except for this. If I was reading the book and it was fiction, I had never heard of Robin Williams, then the last 50 pages I would have predicted suicide. That's all I could say. Because in real life I was surprised because I knew nothing. I just knew his movies. But this tells the true raw details of how he interacted with friends, how paranoid he became, how scary the world became to Robin. He would hide his watches. You know, he would be worried that certain friends of his were in trouble. He was actually going nuts. And he didn't know why. No doctor could tell him. He started to say goodbye to a lot of his friends. It was just a sad final chapter. But when it's a 440-page book, you start to see some of the foreshadowing early in his life. Some of the precursors early in his life that he only knew how to go fast forward. That's no way to live. Here I am preaching like I understand, like I'm a therapist. That's no way to live and fast forward. But he lived it that way. And then he crashed. Like literally. His, like if his body was a machine, it just malfunctioned and stopped. It's a morbid way to reach the end of this podcast, huh? But I do recommend it. Also because, I mean, this guy who wrote the book, that's really solid journalism. To interview that many people. I mean, there's extensive interviews with Billy Crystal, David Letterman. A lot of his fellow comics that he would work with at Throckmorton and Mill Valley. It's got that Marin County flavor throughout the book. I mean, it's pretty local, which makes it a little more appealing for me. But even if you have no clue about Marin County, Tiburon, the Bay Area, San Francisco, it's a hell of a read. Hell of a read. And I'm stopping there. I'm stopping there. It's time for a shower. All right, that's episode 65. If you're into this, leave a review. Leave a rating on iTunes. Let's be Twitter friends. I'm on there at jrosenberg957. I'm wishing you a happy week ahead. Episode 65 is now in the books. I'll talk to you soon.